As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to our sermon text for today, which is Psalm 40. We'll be considering the entirety of that psalm as our sermon text. And this is really a wonderful psalm. It's hard to say that you have a favorite psalm. They're all, they're all so wonderful. But, uh, but this is really a wonderful psalm and one that's worth... Uh, one that's worth becoming very acquainted with and meditating on and, and praying over often, I think. And so I know we have uh, a lot of Psalm 40 today. We're reading it and we're singing it and we're hearing it quoted in the New Testament, but it really is, I hope, uh, I hope to convince you and I hope you, I hope you do agree that it's really a wonderful psalm that's worth, uh, that's worth reading through a few times. So. Let's hear uh, God's word in Psalm number 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. 
Well, I want to begin with a, uh, with a question this morning. Has your joy ever been turned to sorrow? Has your joy ever been turned to sorrow? Perhaps it's something as small as a sports team you really love, does well the entire season. They win, they win most of the games in their season, and then in the final game, the big game of the, of the playoffs, the Super Bowl or the World Series, whatever it might be, they lose. And you're so disappointed. The joy of that great season suddenly turned to sorrow in that moment of loss. On a more serious note, maybe you get the job of a lifetime, You get a raise at work. You're accepted to a great school, and you're really happy about this. You're joyful about uh, about this great news. But suddenly, you receive a call that changes everything. A friend's been in a car accident. Uh, A loved one has died. A, A loved one has been diagnosed with cancer. In that moment, your joy all of a sudden turned to sorrow by the cares and by the sorrows of this world. David, who wrote this psalm, certainly knew what it was to have his joy turn to sorrow. This happened to him time and time again in his life. We can think about toward the beginning of his uh, career as as we read it in in, uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, where he, uh, in that famous story, kills Goliath. After that, he makes a great friend in the king's son, Jonathan. He marries the king's daughter, Michael. He has all this joy, all these great things happening to him. And then all of a sudden, for an extended period of time, he has to go on the run from Saul, who's seeking his life. And he's sorrowful during that time. It's his time of humiliation. His joy over all those great things suddenly turned to sorrow. Or we might think more toward the end of his life, when his son Absalom leads a rebellion against him. And at the end of the battle that put down the rebellion, two messengers come back to David. And the first one says to him, the rebellion's been put down. And this is great news. The kingdom is secure. And then on his heels comes another messenger who says to David, but your son Absalom is dead. He's been killed. In that moment, David's joy over the rebellion being put down suddenly turned to sorrow as he cries out, my son, my son, Absalom, his joy Turn to sorrow. And David wrote this psalm, Psalm 40, for times like this when our joy is turned to sorrow. We can see that even in the structure of the psalm. You may have noticed this as we were singing it. Really, this psalm, we could maybe even do two different tunes, one for the first half and one for the second half, because they're so different in their demeanor. The first half, the first 10 verses are, is really a psalm of thanksgiving as David thanks the Lord, praises him for an act of deliverance. But then there's the sudden change in the second half in verses 11 through 17. As David begins to lament, there's this sudden shift. His joy has turned to sorrow. We can certainly imagine David singing this during times in his life like the ones I mentioned and and many more. We can imagine Israel singing this down through the ages so often. Their joy turned to sorrow as we know. Christ himself Uh, sang this psalm, and the writer of the Hebrews puts this psalm on on Christ's lips as we read in our gospel reading today. And we sing this song as well. This song is for us too. It is a song for us as well. And the message of Psalm 40 for us today is that although so often in this world our joy is turned to sorrow, we can be confident in God's deliverance. Although so often in this world our joy is turned to sorrow, We can live in full confidence of God's deliverance. 
And the psalm brings out this message by talking about the past, the present, and the future. So that's how we'll think about this psalm this morning, is thinking about the past, the present, and the future. Past deliverance, a present response, and then a future deliverance will be our three points. A past deliverance, a present response, and then a future deliverance will be our three points. So first we'll consider a past deliverance. And really, we see this past deliverance in verses 1 through 3 of the psalm. The psalm begins with David's cry for help in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry, David says. As the psalm opens, David's recounting this cry for help. This is not a word, this, this word for cry. This is not something that communicates kind of a little whimper or asking God whenever he finds it convenient to come help David out of this situation. No, this is a much stronger word than that. This is actually the word that's used to describe the cry of the Israelites in Egypt when they were crying out to God to save them from slavery to, uh, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. This is a strong word for cry that's used here. We could even translate it an anguished cry, a, an anguished scream for help. Deliver me, Lord, David is saying uh, in, in anguish. And why is he crying out in anguish? Well, we learn in verse 2 that it's because he was in the pit of destruction, in the miry bog. And this language of pit of destruction and miry bog is language in uh, the Old Testament that is is associated with the place of the dead, with the underworld. Most often we see the word Sheol in the Old Testament. You're probably familiar with that word. This is language associated with Sheol. And there's vivid imagery that we find in Scripture around Sheol, the place of the dead. It's the deepest place, the deepest possible place under the earth. It's a place of incredible darkness. It's described as slimy. It's a prison with bars and gates that you can't escape from. And this is the imagery that David uses to describe his suffering, this deepest possible place under the earth, this uh, prison that he can't escape from. Whatever this suffering was, he doesn't tell us what this suffering was exactly. It could be his enemies that were constantly seeking his life. It could be uh, the death of his son. David lived through the death of, of more than one child. It could be that. It could be the suffering of his own sin as he struggles, as he fights against his own sin in his life. We don't know, but it could be any of these things. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt suffering like this, brothers and sisters, separated from God, as if you were in the deepest possible place under the earth, a prison from which you could not escape. Perhaps this was brought on by the death of a loved one. How can I go on without this person in my life, you thought to yourself. Perhaps this was brought on by the, the realization of the wicked world encircling you, Everyone else out there is going their own way, doing their own thing, and they're prospering for it. Why should I seek to be faithful to the Lord? Perhaps this was brought on as you were overwhelmed by your own sin. There's a sin that you are, that you are fighting against, but you can't seem to overcome it, and it keeps beating you down, and you feel like you're never going to overcome it, and you wonder if God is still for you. You're struggling with assurance of your salvation, And in these times, in these times of deep distress and suffering, David recognizes, and we need to recognize, that there is only one who can deliver from the miry bog, from the pit of destruction. And David recognizes this, that he needs God's deliverance. We need God's deliverance. 
And so in his great suffering, he cries out in anguish to the only one who can save him from this. And God does deliver him, doesn't he? In verse 1 already, he inclined to me and heard my cry, David says. Just like the Israelites in Egypt who cried out to the Lord in anguish to save them from their bondage, from their slavery to the Egyptians, God saved David as well. He listened and he heard, but he also acted on David's behalf, saving him. David says in verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Out of this deep pit, the Lord pulled him up. He set him on level ground, on secure ground, a place where he could stand. And even more, in verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Often in Scripture, we see God's great acts of deliverance lead to singing. So we've been thinking about the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt. Remember, after they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground, what did they do? They sang a song to the Lord. They sang a song of praise, a new song for God's great act of deliverance. The Lord delivered David from the deepest, darkest suffering imaginable, and he gave him a new song of praise, a new reason to rejoice in the salvation of God, in God's deliverance. How often has God delivered you? How often have you felt hopeless like the suffering was too great and like there was no way out? And yet God delivered you. We all have stories like this. We can all talk of times when God brought us out from the pit of destruction, from a place of suffering. When he set our feet on sure footing, when he gave us a new song, a new reason to rejoice in his deliverance. And what's the proper response to these great acts of deliverance, to God setting our feet on secure ground, to him giving us a new song? How should we respond? Well, David previews this somewhat already for us in verse 3 as he talks about many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord, people looking at David and seeing what God has done for him. But he tells us more fully in verses 4 through 10 about his present response to God's deliverance, the proper response to the salvation which God has brought him. And there's really two aspects to David's present response, his proper response to the Lord's deliverance. David offers obedience to the Lord. He says in verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. In other words, blessedness and happiness come from the Lord and not from people. And so David says part of obedience is putting your trust in the Lord and not in people. Not in people who lie about being able to deliver, who lie about being able to bring salvation, but who aren't able to actually do those things. Put your trust in the Lord, David said. He's the one who's able to deliver. He's proved this time and time and time again. Be obedient. Put your trust in the Lord. But it's also obedience to God's law, we see in the following verses. In verses 6 through 8, he says, "...in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted." But you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. You may recognize this language from the prophets, this language of God not desiring burnt offerings and sin offerings. This is language that the prophets sometimes use to denounce Israel's hypocrisy. So, for example, we read in Hosea 6.6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And we might feel some tension as we read these words. We might wonder about this, wondering because God instituted the sacrificial system after all. Is this something that he didn't actually desire? Was it bad? Was it wrong in some way? And I don't think that's how we're to understand this. How we're to understand David's words here are the words of the prophets. David and the prophets, I don't think, are saying that the sacrificial system was wrong in and of itself. God did institute it. It was good because of that. And there are times we read in the Old Testament as well that, uh, that sacrifices brought delight to the Lord, that they were a pleasing aroma to him. We, we see that language often. The sacrificial system in and of itself was not bad. But what David and what the prophets are saying when they use this language is that they're denouncing hypocrisy, bringing sacrifices in hypocrisy. In other words, what they're denouncing is disobeying God's law six days a week, going, about, you know, going after other gods, serving idols, doing, uh, doing whatever they want, the people of Israel, and then bringing their offerings on day seven and thinking that that will make everything better. This is what they're denouncing, not the system in and of itself. David's not seeking to abolish the sacrificial system, but rather what he's looking for is obedience to God's law, which corresponds to the sacrifice that he's bringing. Both obedience and sacrifice from the heart, sincere obedience, sincere sacrifice to God, a life given, of a whole life given of sincere obedience to the Lord is what David is looking for here and what he's saying that he's offering Offering his whole life as a sacrifice to the Lord, as an obedient sacrifice to God. Sincere obedience is the proper response to God's deliverance. Not paying lip service, not going through the motions, but obeying God from the heart. A true delight to do his will. Out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. And this applies to us as well. We shouldn't leave here or leave this evening and go out into the world on Monday through Saturday, go our own way, do whatever we want, and think that coming to church on Sunday will somehow make that automatically better. No, God desires our full lives of obedience to him, wholehearted obedience to him. Uh, obedience from the heart, sincere obedience, is what the Lord desires from us. So obedience is one aspect of David's present response to the Lord's Deliverance, and the other thing David talks about as his present response to the Lord's deliverance is his witness that he bears to God's great acts of deliverance, the witness that he bears to those around him. He says in verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. God has done great things for his people. No one else is able to do these things, and what does David say he, he will do in response? I will proclaim and tell of them yet they are more than can be told. He says something similar in verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So David's response to God's deliverance is one of obedience and one of bearing witness to God's great acts. And this should be our response as well, brothers and sisters. Look what God has done for me, we should say to those around me. See how much the Lord has done for me. See how he has delivered me. See how he has brought me salvation. He's worthy of your confidence. He's worthy of your trust. 
May this be our witness along with David, our witness to God's great deliverance, his great love for us, his great salvation. And yet, for all the greatness of God's deliverance, for all his, uh, for all uh, this wonderful response of David, of obedience, of witness to those around him, this psalm takes a sharp turn in verse 11, as, we, as, we, uh, as I mentioned, as David's joy over God's deliverance, as his joy over proclaiming that deliverance in the midst of the great congregation suddenly turns to sorrow. And what David makes clear for us in these closing verses of the psalm is that there is still a future deliverance needed. There's still something more needed. And David really gives two reasons for this need for future deliverance, both an internal problem and an external problem. We see the internal problem in verse 12 as David says, Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Now this also might create a little tension for us, might make us wonder to ourselves, what's going on here? Because just a few verses earlier, what, four or five verses earlier, David just said that his response to God's great deliverance was obedience, sincere obedience from the heart. And now what is David saying? That his iniquities are so great they're about to swallow him up. They're about to overcome him. What's going on here? What happened to this great obedience that David just said he was going to offer? Well, I think what David recognizes, and part of the reason he turns to this second half of the psalm in in lament, is he recognizes that as great as his obedience might be, there's still a greater obedience needed. He can't offer the perfect obedience that God created humanity for, that God demanded of Adam in the garden to earn eternal life that God continues to, uh, to require. David's not capable of offering this perfect obedience. There's a greater obedience needed because David feels like his iniquities are overcoming him, like they're too much, like they're about to swallow him up. There's something more needed. His own obedience can't save him. So there's an internal problem that David brings out here, but there's also an external problem. Not only a problem inside David, but a problem outside as well. He says in verses 14 and 15, Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Despite the past deliverance that the Lord brought to David time and time again, delivering him, bringing him salvation, there's still enemies that are troubling David. There's still people who want to, who are mocking him. There's still people who are seeking his life. He hasn't been uh, fully delivered from these, from these external problems, these problems outside of him, his enemies coming against him. Despite all the great victories that David won, there's still a need for his enemies to be conquered once and for all. And David recognizes this, both of these problems. And how does David end this psalm? In verse 17, I am poor and needy. Do not delay, O my God. That's the last words that are ringing in our ears when we close this psalm. There's still a deliverance needed. But this is not just a need for deliverance without any certainty. David doesn't wonder whether God will bring this deliverance. He doesn't doesn't have any doubt that God will bring this deliverance. 
he expresses total confidence, actually, that the Lord will deliver. Notice how David bookends this second section of the prayer, verses 11 and 17, with expressions of great confidence in the Lord's deliverance. In verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. The Lord will deliver him. The Lord will not restrain his mercy from David. And notice how he ends on a note of confidence as well. I am poor and needy, yes, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. There's no question who is going to deliver David. There's no question if God is going to deliver David. David is absolutely certain of this. And why is it that David's able to pray with such confidence, with such certainty that God will bring the deliverance that he's looking for from his own sin and from his enemies encircling him? Well, it's because God has always delivered him in the past. From wild animals when he was tending the sheep, from Saul when he was running from him, from his enemies when they came against him, even from his own sin. God has always delivered him. And more than that, God has always delivered his people. We mentioned the Exodus several times today. This is that great redemptive event that David would have looked back to. As he thought about God's deliverance, he would have thought of God bringing his people out of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land. This great act of deliverance that David looked back to, the exodus from Egypt. God always has delivered his people, David recognized. And yet, something more is needed still, an ultimate, a decisive, a final acting to put away sin, a final conquering of the enemies of God and his people once and for all. David has no doubt that God will act in this ultimate, this final, this decisive way. And so he prays with total confidence to God for God to act. Well, brothers and sisters, David's prayer has been answered in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. He defeated God's enemies once and for all. And he did this by offering the kind of perfect obedience which God requires the kind of perfect obedience which David recognized he was incapable of rendering, which we are incapable of, of offering to God. Hebrews 10, as we saw, as we read earlier, uses Psalm 40. You maybe noticed that, uh, that that's, the, that's what the writer to the Hebrews is quoting there uh, to make this point about Christ's obedience. I'll read just a portion of that since we read it earlier. I'll read just a small portion of that again to remind us. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, is it, come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then skipping down a little bit, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's only one ever whose obedience perfectly corresponded to the sacrifice that he brought. Christ offered himself entirely throughout his entire life as a sacrifice of obedience to the Lord, even unto death, even unto his death on a cross. He was in the pit of destruction, in the miry bog, in a way that you and I and no one who trusts in him will ever have to be. Because in that miry bog, in the pit of destruction, he underwent the full wrath of God against sin. 
He cried out in anguish from this pit of destruction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God did deliver him from this pit of destruction, raising him up on the third day. And so through his life of obedience, through his sacrificial death, Christ has defeated all his enemies, all our enemies. He has crushed Satan's head. Our sins are forgiven. His righteousness is ours. Through faith, his deliverance is our deliverance. Now we may ask as we come to a close here, can we still sing the second half of this psalm? Is it still appropriate for us to sing the second half? After all, if David was praying for, uh, for a future deliverance, which Jesus Christ has now brought, do we still sing the second half? We already sang it earlier, so I, I hope the answer is yes. And I think the answer is yes. We can still sing the second half of this psalm because we're still waiting for Christ's return. We're still waiting for him to consummate the deliverance that he has already brought, the salvation that he has already won. His work is finished, and yet we still live in this present evil age waiting for our Lord to return, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth as we prayed for earlier, to put to an end finally sin and death with his, with his return. And so, yes, we still can sing the second half of this psalm with David as we still struggle with our sin, as we still have enemies who wish to destroy Christ and his church. We still deal with these things every day. So often in this life, our joy is turned to sorrow, isn't it? So often in this life, God doesn't deliver us from earthly suffering when we pray. Family members do die. Friends do, uh, do get into car accidents. Sometimes there are relationships that can't be mended. Sometimes God does not deliver from earthly sufferings when we pray for this. But we can sing the second half of this song with even more confidence than David. And he prayed with a lot of confidence. We can sing this with even more confidence than he did. Because the great salvation that David was looking forward to has come through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can have full assurance that he will return in glory to save those who are patiently waiting for him on that day. And on that day that he will lead us in the new song of God's salvation in the new heavens and the new earth, which all the redeemed will sing with one heart and one voice. And so what can we do, brothers and sisters, in light of this great salvation, in light of the confidence and the hope that we have in Christ's return, but respond in grateful obedience to our God, and as the church bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ into this dark world. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that you have brought the deliverance which David looked forward to in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we live on this side of the cross, and so even though we may still struggle with our own sin and are often beset by enemies who wish nothing more than to destroy Christ and his church, we can pray and sing this psalm with utter confidence, knowing that as you have delivered us in the past, your Son will return and make all things new. May we always live in light of this great deliverance and great hope, seeking to obey your law more and more each and every day, and seeking to spread the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all corners of this dark world. Amen.